We're finishing up our series, Bible 101. And last week, Dave gave a phenomenal message on the seed of the woman and the promise that God gave that he would crush the head of the serpent, but in the process that his heel would be crushed. It's actually the same word there in Hebrew, crush, head of the serpent, crush his heel. And um, for those of you that missed it, the way that happened was on the cross where Jesus crushed the head of the serpent. And here's something really cool. I found a picture that I wanted to share to get started as a recap. And crucifixion was really common in the first century. A lot of people got crucified. And so there's been remains of crucifixion victims. And one of the things that they found is that the way you were crucified, uh, the traditional image of, you know, foot over foot and like this and nails through the hands and uh, isn't exactly how it worked. It's more of a medieval painting idea than actual crucifixion. It was usually you were all contorted and nailed through your wrists and it was just really gross. And there's actually uh, one of the remains I found a picture of and I wanted to show it. This is an actual, this is an illustration of a remain that was dug up north of Jerusalem and it's from the first century and you can see the nail going through the piece of bone and that bone is the heel bone. And I thought that was pretty amazing that uh, because when they would crucify, you would be turned sideways so it was hard to breathe, and then the nail would go through both heels, uh, or either you would straddle it and it would go through both heels. And so literally, Jesus' heel was crushed as he was crushing the head of the serpent. And I thought that that was just fantastic, fantastic uh, coincidence, you could say. But uh, I, we, we talked about and, and we sang, and last week's worship was incredible. If you were here, it was just incredible at the end, especially, and, and the victory. And even tonight, we talked about all of the, the victory Jesus has won and the servant's head has been crushed. Yes. Then why do people still die? You know? Why did 50 people die in a plane crash in Buffalo recently? Uh, why did some of your family, some of your friends die as recently as this week for some of you? You know, if, he, if he's supposed to have won and crushed, then what's going on? Because sometimes we look around, it doesn't look like anything. And when we do Bible 101, when we talk about seeing the overall narrative of Scripture, one of the things we have to see is, is the, the picture that Scripture paints, not just of the past, but also of what's our present reality and then the ultimate future. And Scripture has a lot more to say about the past, but that is to be applied to our present reality. But it has a few things to say about right now. And all throughout, we see this story of, of creation that we talked about the first week, and then Dave talked last week about the fall and then the redemption. And that's not the end of Scripture. The end of Scripture is going towards new creation. And we're going to look at that because it's really important to understand, and it gives us a whole new, or at least it gives me a whole new view of our faith. Uh, check out Daniel chapter 7, and this was... This is sort of midway through the Bible. Daniel lived about a half a millennium before Jesus, and he was given a vision of what was going on. And Daniel didn't really know exactly what was going on at the time. And if you read Daniel, he kind of admits as much. He's like, I, I don't really understand this. And God tells him, that's okay. Seal it up. It's not for you. It's for people that are coming after you. But the thing that he saw, and this is what's amazing, uh, in Daniel chapter 7, Starting in verse 9, it says, As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. That's God. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was a flaming fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. 
A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. And then I continued to watch because of the boastful words that the horn was speaking. And, and Daniel's writing in what's called apocalyptic. You remember the first week we talked about different genres of Scripture. And Daniel's writing in an ancient genre that's well known, and we have many examples, called apocalyptic, where symbols and images are used to convey earthly realities but seen from the perspective of heaven. And so Daniel's seeing this heavenly courtroom, and then he's been looking down previously in this, if you read context, and seeing these, these beastly monsters just destroying God's people and speaking against God, and it just looks awful, like God's losing. Um, Daniel, he, he asks, uh, continue to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire, and the other beasts had been stripped of their authority and had been allowed to live for a period of time. And then he comes to a second section of the vision. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. It's no coincidence that Jesus' favorite title during his earthly ministry for himself was Son of Man, because everything Jesus said and did when read in the context of that whole storyline of the Bible is Jesus saying, hey, I'm what all of the prophets saw coming, even the ones that didn't necessarily know it. I'm the fulfillment. I am the Son of Man. I am the one who will receive power and glory. And Daniel, in his vision, he sees him. Now, Daniel's in the throne room in heaven, and he sees one coming before the throne of God, the coming on the clouds from earth to heaven. And he's presented before God, and he's given all of this authority and all of this power. And, and that's, that's the, the reality when Jesus ascended. After he finished his work on the cross, he hung out with his disciples. He trained them. He did a 40-day intensive Bible study with them. And then he was ascended into heaven. He carried out what Daniel saw half a millennium before. And that's where he's seated. We say it in the Apostles' Creed. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And so the question is, well, what's he doing there? You know, what, what, what's he doing there when things are so bad here still? And there's a, one of the analogies in Scripture is, or one of the ideas in Scripture is that Jesus ushered in the kingdom, but the reason that a lot of people missed him and ignored him and pushed him aside is because he didn't do it all at once. Jesus didn't follow people's timelines. They wanted to see something happen now. We want a Messiah who's going to come. He's going to crush Rome. He's going to establish Jerusalem, drive out the enemies, and it's all going to happen now. And we find out Jesus looks back over the storyline of Scripture and sees it and says, now this thing's happening in stages because my plans are bigger than Jerusalem. My plans are to the ends of the earth. And Jesus now is enthroned, and when he left, he left his kingdom in the hands of about a hundred or so of his followers who had very little experience in mass evangelism. None of them knew how to use PowerPoint. They didn't know the three-point sermons. They were mostly uneducated, and those people rocked their world. They turned the Roman Empire upside down. And they've been doing it ever since. 
And we're in this church today because they've been doing that. Because Jesus said, my kingdom's coming, but it's not going to come completely until the whole world has had a chance to hear it. I will come back, but I'm coming back for a whole lot more than I left. And we live in that period, that period of tension between the victory's been won and we're waiting on the consummation. And a great analogy that preachers have used for the past 50 years was, was World War II. Uh, if you've seen Saving Private Ryan, you know how horrible uh, D-Day was. And, and it, was, it was a nightmare for the people that were there. But from the rest of the world's perspective, as soon as the Allies landed, the war was over. When news got to the concentration camps and the prison camps that the Allies had landed at Normandy, they went nuts because they knew what that meant. That meant that the, the nations, the Axis nations, were defeated. And all that was left was the mopping up the battles that they still had to fight, but they were ultimately defeated. And then VE, Victory in Europe Day, came. And that's where we live right now. If you look at the storyline of Scripture, is we live in between the D-Day. That was the cross. Jesus said, it is finished. He had brought the whole First Testament, First Covenant, what we call the Old Testament, brought that to a close and transferred into the New Covenant. And all of the promises that the Old Covenant had seen and all of the things that God had said he would do and Jesus takes it to the next level. And that's where we are today. But that's not where it ends. If that's where it ended, whoop-de-doo. There are much more fun and, and religions that you could join that you can get away with a lot more than Christianity if that's all there is, if we're just being good people because Jesus was. No, 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 not at all. In fact, let me read what one view of when we talk about the end, when we talk about where we're headed, um, a lot of people are, are, and you may have been raised this way, that Jesus came and he died on the cross and that made God happy and he wasn't mad at us anymore and so now we can die and go to heaven forever. That's what most Christians even hear today. And, and non-Christians, there's, there's a similar thought, um, but, but in, in our Judeo-Christian pop culture knowledge of heaven, hell, all that kind of stuff, um, the common thought of where everything's headed is this idea of heaven. Even among non-Christians, there's the idea of heaven. And I wanted to read uh, Maria Shriver, First Lady of California, uh, Arnold's wife. She wrote a book a long time ago, a children's book called What's Heaven? And uh, N.T. Wright, he's one of my favorite Christian scholars, New Testament scholars, uh, he, he noted this in his book on heaven. He said, the book is called What's Heaven, and it's aimed at children, with lots of large pictures of fluffy clouds and blue skies. Each page of the text has one sentence in extra large type, making the basic message of the book crystal clear. Heaven, says Shriver, and then he's going to quote, is somewhere you believe in. It's a beautiful place where you can sit on soft clouds and talk to other people who are there. At night, you can sit next to the stars, which are the brightest of anywhere in the universe. If you're good throughout your life, then you can go to heaven. When your life is finished here on earth, God sends his angels down to take you up to heaven to be with him. And Grandma, she's alive in me. Most important, she taught me to believe in myself. She's in a safe place with the stars and with God and with angels. She's watching over us from up there. I want you to know, says the heroine to her great-grandma, that even though you're no longer here, your spirit will always be with me. And then Wright goes on to say, this is more or less exactly what millions of people in the Western world have come to believe, to accept this truth and to teach to their children. 
Heaven is the goal. You want to get out of here. You want to go to the pearly gates. You want St. Peter to call your name and let you in and get away from this world. Wrong. That is 100% wrong. And if you've been taught that growing up, you've been taught wrong. I've been taught wrong because that's not the story that God's telling. God went to all of the trouble to create the world. And we saw that after he was finished creating us, he sat and rested and he said, it is very good. And then sin came along and we saw how it twisted everything and, and, and humanity turned and rebelled and everything just went to hell, literally. God's not going to give up. In, in, in a Bible 101 overview, what you see is that God is not giving up on that creation. The concept of floating away into a heaven where you exist forever, uh, sitting on clouds and looking at stars, one, that's really boring, and two, nowhere in Scripture. Nowhere. But yet we as the church, we just sort of have tended to adopt these views. If you're good, you go to heaven. If you're bad, you go to hell. And that's where Satan is the ruler down there. No, Satan's the ruler here on earth, who the kingdom of God is fighting against. So what does Scripture teach? What is the view of heaven? Well, one of the things, and, and this might be surprising to some of you, heaven, as in where you go when you die to be with the Lord, is temporary. It's not the destination. John, a New Testament apostle, had a vision, kind of like Daniel's. In fact, it was the same genre, apocalyptic. A lot of the same symbols, a lot of the same imagery, a lot of the same truths being told. And in his vision, uh, John was given the privilege of actually getting to peep in on what's going on around the throne of God. And it's crazy. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff going on, and apocalyptic imagery is rampant so that, that he's overwhelmed and he's seeing all these things, and, and we don't even have time to scratch the surface of that. But what he does see is he sees Jesus ascend. And Jesus is not seen as Jesus, but rather as the Lamb of God. He sees Jesus as the fulfillment of what Daniel saw. And Jesus, he comes and he approaches God, and there's this cool thing where everybody, uh, all the angels and all the elders fall down and they worship him. And, and, um, and this isn't on your screen, but it's kind of neat, so I'm going to read it anyway. They say, they're singing to Jesus and they're saying, you are worthy to take the scroll. And in Revelation, the scroll, as you find out, is God's will, God's decree. When a king would have an edict and write it on a scroll and seal it, that was his orders. And whoever opened the scroll could then carry out those orders. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God members of every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. That's what Jesus came to do. Adam was supposed to reign on the earth, to rule over, to have dominion, to subdue, to be fruitful and multiply, all the stuff that just went out the window when he sinned. Jesus, the second Adam, has come to get it right. And he did. And then his goal is to make a whole bunch of other second Adams and Eves who get it right as well. Well, so, so John's seeing this, and he's not processing. He's just seeing. And then he starts seeing, he sees Jesus, the Lamb, go over and take the scroll and begin opening these seals, begin putting God's decree into order. 
and, and there's, there's a whole sequence, and there's all kinds of views on Revelation and books and, and, and scary, scare you into the heaven rapture films and all this kind of stuff. And without even getting into that, there's a scene where, where John sees Jesus open the lamb. He sees him open one of the seals, the fifth seal. And Revelation is in chapter 6, verse 9. Listen, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, the altar of God, the throne room where all this is, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They cried out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Christians who had given their lives for the gospel in heaven, they are in the throne room of God. There is close as you can get, and they're crying out, God, you're not finished. There's got to be more, because justice has not been served where we came from. They're crying out. Verse 11, then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants and brothers and sisters were killed, just as they had been. God's answer to them was, hang on. We've got more business to do down there, and you may be getting some company, but I'm not done yet. And Revelation goes on to talk about uh, God's plan throughout history and how he's been doing and, 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 and what he's been doing to redeem the world. And the, the key that's, that's put forward in Revelation, which is sort of the end of the Bible 101, is that heaven's not the goal. Heaven's the waiting place. You die to be with the Lord, sure, but he's going to raise you up one day. And the core, the core of the Christian faith, the hope that Christians had that their early pagan neighbors did not have and that the early Jews had that got them through the periods of slaughter and the periods of persecution under the Greek and the Roman empires and all of these kings, the hope was that you can do whatever you want to this body, but I'm going to get it back one day. So do your worst. In fact, you can read historic Jewish accounts before Jesus of, of martyrs during the Maccabean time, and, and as they were being killed, literally, they would offer their body and say, do what you want because we're getting it back. Because the hope has always been in the Christian faith, resurrection, to undo what was done at the fall, to destroy the works of the devil, is how 1 John puts it. And if we just die and go off to heaven, death wins. It, it takes our body. The bodies that were created in the image of God are taken from us. It screws up God's plans. He had planned for a good earth, a good creation, filled with people that bore his image, who could have community with him and with one another. If heaven's where you go off when you die and float there and lay forever, death wins. And that was never the biblical truth. The biblical truth was always resurrection. The later pagan, platonic, Greco-Roman philosophical kind of ideas that crept in the church over the years stressed the immortality of the soul without the body. But the Bible didn't. The Bible from the beginning was like, you're going to get your body back. Even as early as Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, those guys knew that they were going to be raised. Because they said, hey, when we die, I want you to take our bones out of Egypt and back to the land that God gave us. Because that's where we belong. Because they knew they were coming back. They didn't know how. 
They didn't know the means or how it would work, but they knew that death was not going to win. Paul wrote about this a lot. For some Christians, if they don't read it in Paul, then it didn't happen. So let me uh, set you at ease here. Um, Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthians, he's writing about because they're wondering what's going on, what's, you know, where's this all headed? And Paul writes in chapter 5, he says, We know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we're clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal, and I love this phrase, may be swallowed up by life. Now, people have read this throughout the years and with the, the, the Greco-Roman notion of immortality of the soul, and they've said, oh, Paul's talking about when, when we shed this earthly tent and go to heaven forever. That's not what Paul says. He says we have a heavenly body, but he didn't say we go to heaven forever. In fact, he wrote again. He wrote a lot. He wrote to the Thessalonians, and, and this passage is, is um, the Thessalonians, they were wondering, okay, Jesus came and he did his thing and we have our faith in him and we believe in him, but our people are dying. Some of, our, some of our people here have died. What does that mean for them? Do they miss out? And Paul, speaking to the audience in, in Thessalonica, uh, very much into their culture, he gives them a beautiful illustration that has been missed time and time again when we don't know the culture and we don't understand the original languages and all the things we talked about the first week uh, when we just sort of gloss over, he gives a perfect example. This is what Paul says. And, and, and I'll just quick disclaimer here. Uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, read this passage and, and they've been, been in traditions where uh, they read what Paul's talking about here as the rapture. Um, and that's a whole other debate for another time, and, 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 you know, we're one, so we're not going to dwell on the differences, but just I think there's something more going on here than, uh, than what you read in Left Behind. Check this out. <laughs> brothers and sisters, this is chapter 4, verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death or have fallen asleep. Paul used that metaphor to describe those who had died as falling asleep because they were resting in the Lord so that you do not grieve like the rest who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, I've heard this read a lot of ways, and usually something along the lines of Jesus is going to come and and he's going to get us and take us to heaven, and we'll be with him forever. No. No. Paul uses a very specific term in this passage. When he talks about the coming of Jesus, he uses this word parousia, and it means arrival or presence. 
And it's a very specific word. Cicero would use it in the ancient Roman world to talk about whenever a conquering mighty king or general or some ruler would go back to a town or a city or a village or wherever he was the king of after having won a battle, after having defeated the enemy, he would come back to his throne where he would reign. And all of the people in the village would go, or the city would go out to meet this conquering, parading, cheering, laughing, everybody in, in triumph procession coming into the city. They would go out to meet him in the countryside, sometimes even miles. And they would meet him at his parousia, and then they would follow him back. Praise, worship, singing, dancing, laughing, being joyful that their conquering king had won, and they would follow him back to where he would sit on his throne. Anybody see the movie Gladiator? Right? Um, the beginning of the movie, after uh, Joaquin Phoenix kills his dad in the movie, and then uh, it, when he's riding back to Rome, that scene where he's coming into Rome, and, and it shows Rome in all its glory, and all these people are lined out on the streets, and everything is celebrating, and the chariots go right up to the court. That's a parousia. That's the image that Paul's using here. Except for Paul knows that Jesus didn't go somewhere on the world to conquer and come back. Jesus ascended into heaven. The Son of Man ascended into heaven. And he's coming back, but he's not coming back to take his people out of the world. He's coming back to bring reality, God's presence, God's victory, and all who have died with him. He's coming back to rule here. And that's the hope. He says, don't, don't grieve like people who don't have any hope because you know and I know that resurrection, that's where we're headed, not off into heaven. Jesus, the conquering Lord, he's coming back. His parousia is going to be amazing. And we'll go out and we'll meet him. Whether you're dead, whether you're alive, all who are in Christ, all who have acknowledged what the seed of the woman has done to the head of the serpent, we'll go out to meet him and follow him back to where he will reign. We're going to look at a picture of that in just a minute, and, and that'll be the main text that we go to tonight because we, we sort of jumped around, and usually that's kind of weird when I teach or preach because I like to just kind of go through one passage. Um, but this is such a bigger issue that it's important. Let me read. This is from the same book of N.T. Wright. This is, he summed it up better than I could ever hope to as, after talking through all these issues in the book and looking at the biblical data and looking at the idea of, of going off to heaven as being... Uh, something foreign to Scripture. He says, Mention salvation, and almost all Western Christians assume that you mean going to heaven when you die. But a moment's thought, in the light of all we've said so far, reveals that this simply cannot be right. Salvation means, of course, rescue. But what are we ultimately to be rescued from? The obvious answer is death. But if when we die, all that happens is our bodies decompose while our souls, or whatever word you want to use, goes on elsewhere, this doesn't mean that we've been rescued from death. It simply means we've died. And if God's good creation of the world, of life as we know it, of our glorious and remarkable bodies, brains, bloodstreams, is really good, and if God wants to reaffirm that goodness in a wonderful act of new creation at the last then to see the death of the body and escape of the soul as salvation is not simply slightly off course in need of a few subtle alterations and modifications. It is totally and utterly wrong. 
It's colluding with death. It's conniving at death's destruction of God's good, image-bearing human creatures while consoling ourselves with the essentially non-Christian and non-Jewish thought that the really important bit of ourselves is saved from this wicked, nasty body in this sad, dark world of space, time, and matter. As we've seen, the whole of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation speaks out against such nonsense. It is, however, what most Western Christians, including most Bible Christians of whatever sort, actually believe. As a serious state of affairs reinforced not only in popular teaching, but also in liturgies, public prayers, hymns, and homilies of every kind. The reality that the Bible talks about, the story of Bible 101 is so much cooler than the idea of dying and going off to heaven. And we as Christians have been either duped or misled or just haven't paid attention, and we've settled for so much less. Look where it's all headed. How does it all end? How does, how does Bible 101, the storyline, how does it end? It started with the creation, and then the fall, and then redemption. Look at new creation. John, the same guy that was given the vision in Revelation, he gets a glimpse of sort of where everything's headed. And, and one thing that you'll find throughout the Bible is that when it comes to the afterlife, all the details that we want to know, Remember, we got to ask the questions the Bible is wanting to answer, and it doesn't give us a lot of information, but it gives us enough to generate the hope that we have, and it gives us the big picture. It's like uh, signposts pointing towards a destination. You know, the signs aren't perfect pictures of the destination, but they're telling you this is what's ahead. You know, a little tent and the picnic table, that means there's a beautiful national park down the road. It doesn't mean you're going to go and there's a little Lego man tent and table there. It's so much better than the signs can point to, and that's how it is in the Bible, too. This is what John sees. This is, this is after all is said and done, Jesus has come back, and he's come back to judge and to reign and to resurrect, and he's bringing something with him. Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. And, and in apocalyptic imagery, everywhere in Daniel, Revelation, extra-biblical. Uh, the sea in the ancient Near Eastern world was, was sort of seen as the epitome of chaos and of darkness and, and the, the evil. Uh, it was just a very powerful symbol of, of all of that. Uh, and, and he says, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne God, saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and their, be their God. That's huge because throughout the whole Bible, the storyline is, is when the fall happened, human, humanity and God were separated by sin. And even in the Garden of Eden, it says that when Adam and Eve were, were kicked out, there was a cherubim was placed at the entrance with a flaming sword that went in every direction, uh, which was like, don't come past me because I will slice you up because I'm a big cherubim, not a fat baby with wings, and I'm mighty. And then in the tabernacle, when that was built, God inspired the, the artisans, uh, uh, Bezalel, Aholiab, the two guys that were ever filled with the, first filled with the Holy Spirit. He inspired them to weave this curtain that would separate the Holy of Holies from the outside. And on that curtain was woven cherubim 
all up and down this curtain, symbolizing, hey, you still can't get into my presence without something coming between us and taking care of your sin. And then when Jesus died, when the servant's head was crushed, that same curtain was destroyed from top to bottom, not bottom to top. Somebody didn't rip it from the bottom. It ripped from the top. Because God was saying, hey, that barrier, that thing that separates me from sinful humanity, um, that's been fixed. And it's been fixed by being gotten rid of. Because I've come as one of you, and I've bridged the gap that you couldn't bridge. And so when God finally does come in this period when, when, when his church has spread and the kingdom has come, and, and, and he's finally ready to come back into his place where he reigns and rules, he's bringing a whole new creation with him. And the cool thing is that separation will not ever be there. God will be with us as he was with Adam and Eve. But it gets better. Verse 4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. That's pretty cool. Everything that had, that, that had been plaguing humanity from the very beginning God wipes it all away. But the good, the things that are pure, the things that he had created in the first place remain. They're purified. They're refined. And we're in his presence. He goes on in the same chapter in verse 10. He said, and the angel that's showing John all this carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And then John sees this image of Jerusalem, and in apocalyptic imagery in the Bible, Jerusalem represents God's dwelling with his people. And John sees Jerusalem, and it's just described in terms that are so beyond literal that we can't even imagine. It's, it's, it's all of these precious stones and metals, and its dimensions are weird. It's this big cube that's like 2,500 miles in every direction, solid gold, but it's got pearls as gates. And all of these images that sort of contradict if you try to put it literally, but if you read what they're saying, it's just describing everything that Scripture has been longing for. And here's the thing that John didn't see in verse 22. I didn't see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. In an ancient city, you would close the gates at night because the gates were how people got in and out of the city, and for safety, you would do that. But say, no, no, that won't even, you don't even need that. The glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what's shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then, and this is where I think it's so cool how Scripture does this, that one unified story that runs through. Here's the bookend. Remember, remember creation, how we started out. Remember Eden. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down to the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. 
the very thing Adam and Eve were kicked out and not allowed to eat from. Bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, not once a year, every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, not for the covering of their shame like they tried the first time, but for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the lamp, the light of a lamp, or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. That's where it's headed. That's where it's headed. God's, God lost his creation at the fall. He's not giving up without a fight. In fact, he came and got down and dirty himself to fight for it. And he paid a price that none of us can hardly imagine to get it back. And the hope that the early church had, the hope that drove them when they lost family members, when they had to watch their loved ones thrown into the Colosseum with animal skins sewn on them as halftime show during the gladiator games, when they had to watch their family dipped in pitch and tied on a stake and lit on fire to light Nero's backyard barbecues, when they had to see these things happening, their hope was not, well, they're in a better place now. No, that was true. They were in a better place, but their hope was they didn't win. death did not win because they're coming back. They are coming back. I got to preach a funeral last year of uh, a woman who was in my Sunday, uh, some of my classes that I teach at the church. And during the funeral, you know, it's usually you want to say something nice and you know, talk about him being, she died of cancer, or she's cancer free now, and, and all that stuff was true. But the thing that was just burning in my heart was. I'm going to see her again. And I had um, some family friends, and they lost their son his freshman year of college. And the mom was, uh, she was folding laundry one day, and one of his pairs of boxers was in the, lo the laundry load. And she broke down. She was telling this to my mom and dad, and um, she was saying, you know, I just wept because I realized I'm never going to hold him again. And I was like, yes, you are. You are going to get to hold him again. Death did not win. If death wins, then Jesus is death and nothing. Those of you that you've lost loved ones, you've lost people that you care about, the promise of the gospel is that you will see them again, not in some heaven where you barely recognize them, but here on earth. You get to hold their hand. You get to laugh with them. You get to wrestle around with them like you did as kids. You get to do all of that stuff because death doesn't win. Jesus wins. He didn't come to give us a pie in the sky, this hope that we float off together and we're in a better place and clouds and harps. That, that would suck if that was the end. That would utterly suck. Who wants to sit on a cloud? After five minutes, that's not fun anymore. No, God's bringing back. Think of, think of every good time you've ever had with everyone that you love. And take away everything about that that was off or weird or awkward or, or, or messed up or annoying or bad weather or mosquitoes at the picnic or what. Take all that away. And that is a glimpse 
of where this thing's headed for those who put themselves into the loving arms of the seed of the woman. That's the story of the Bible. It's not just a collection of books that are put together and and we read it and, oh, I did my daily devotional today. Oh, I can go about my day. (laughs) That's not going to get through. That's not going to make the church in nations where it is literally illegal to be a Christian. That is not going to get them through this. The Christian church in China doesn't have nearly 100 million members in the underground churches because they're hoping to get away to heaven when they die. It has 100 million members because they know that no matter what their government or other governments or anyone does, those who are in Christ will reign on the earth in him, through him, renewed in his image. Those whose lives have been cut short, they have a long road ahead to make up for it. Eternity. All of those, those children that die in, in third world countries that we look at and just go, how can you happen? To, you know, God's saying, hang on a little while. Hang on a little while. Because they're going to get their shot. That's the hope that we have. That's the hope that changed the world. Not good moral behavior. Not following the rules. Not even singing really cool worship songs. The hope that changed the world is that death loses. And the only thing that we have to realize, at least tonight, is do we want to be on death's side or do we want to be on the side of the seed of the woman? We know who wins. We're going to close with some worship tonight. And um, I have so loved this series uh, because the Bible, as a teacher of the Bible, I see so many things in here that that are just amazing, that I always want to share and get out with people. And, and, um, and so I hope this has at least piqued your interest to dig into this. As we close, um, and the band can come up, we just want to take a minute to thank God. Lord, thank you for revealing your plans where everything's headed. Thank you for not being a God who just wants to beam us up out of here, content with, with floating around forever in your presence, but, but that you're a God who wants to take back what was lost. And Lord, for, uh, for there's, there are people in here right now, there are people who are torn up because death, the enemy, seems to have won in their life. And I pray that your word would penetrate their heart and your word would encourage their spirit that your word, your promise of resurrection, your promise of new life, your promise that death does not win, that you do, I pray that that would give them a new level of joy that they've never known. And I pray that, that though we still grieve for those that we've lost, and though we all, unless you come back before we die, we're all going to experience death, Lord. And it is still the enemy, but it's an enemy that's been defanged. Its bite doesn't hurt anymore. And so I pray that while we, even as we live and breathe and and grieve those that we do lose in the meantime, those who have fallen asleep, as Paul said, that we'll know that that's only a temporary state of affairs. You're coming back, and we're ready. And so with the earliest Christians from the very beginning, we pray, come, Lord Jesus. Come, judge the quick and the dead. 
and bring the resurrection of the body that's been our hope from the beginning. Lord, we give you this time of worship now. Fill it with your spirit. Let's make some noise for your kingdom. Amen.